Hi, I'm Peter Klein, and this is episode 42 of We Had No Idea. We come to you, or I guess I come to you, from Wilkinsis, and we acknowledge that we get the privilege of living and producing this show on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Sutsina Nations, the Iyahe Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. You can find out what native lands you are on by looking at native-land.ca. The sources for the show today, and this will be a dead giveaway as to what we are doing today. What's My Name, the Muhammad Ali documentary on HBO, history.com, biography.com, and time.com. So, if you've noticed by now, uh, the more delightful voice on this program is absent today. This is uh, just a Peter Klein episode for you all today. Kim has a lot of other work stuff going on, and so she did a solo effort when I was um, sick. I'm going to be much less graphic about what she's dealing with because it's much less graphic. Uh, she Again, she's just out of town for work. So I am going to do a solo episode. Um, if you know me, you know that sports is kind of a big thing for me. I'm going to... I was going to say I'm going to try to keep the sports stuff to a minimum, but um, today's episode is on Muhammad Ali, someone who is like my, my absolute favorite athlete of all time. He is the greatest of all time. And I think even if you just take boxing out of the equation, this is someone who had a pretty remarkable life and uh, truly one of my heroes and someone who I, I look up to immensely. So we're going to, to run through all of that today. If you are here for the witty, witty banter uh, between Kim and myself, I, I apologize. I'll try to make as many jokes as I can. Uh, about people getting punched in the head, but uh, yes, I, I will only be offended a little bit if you decide, eh, this one maybe isn't for me, I'll come back next week when it's the two of them. So, let's get into it. Oh, before we do, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for downloading and for listening today. Uh, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can do so on Instagram. We Had No Idea Podcast is the uh, Instagram account, and We Had No Idea Podcast at gmail.com is the email Addy. So, born Cassius Clay in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Cassius's mom told a story that when he was a child, he was so strong that at 18 months, he was just swinging his arms around like babies do and knocked his mom's teeth out. He was curious about race at an early age, noting how pictures of Jesus were white and everything and everyone in the pictures in heaven were white. In, in an interview they featured on the, the What's My Name documentary, he said, Mom, when we die, do we go to heaven? Yes, of course we do. Well, then what happened to all the black angels when they took all of those pictures? Um, he would go on to say, oh, I know, all the black people were in the kitchen when they were taking those pictures making milk and honey. Everything was white. Tarzan, king of the jungle, he was white. So this was someone who, at a very early age, had an understanding that race was a way too big of a part of, of life in the United States. When he was young, about 12 years old, he had his bicycle stolen. He reported... The, uh, the the theft to a police officer who happened to be a boxing trainer and, and Clay uh, and said that Clay should train as Cassius wanted to fight the person who took the bike from him and thus one of the great boxing careers is born in 1960 he won the National Gold Gloves tournament which is an amateur boxing tournament held every year that same year he qualified for the American Olympic team he was afraid of flying and told his coach that the only way he was going to Rome was on a boat quote I don't worry about the fight I worry about the flight. A poet already. Um, he got over that and made his way to Italy to fight in the light heavyweight tournament. In the final, he fought a fellow named Ziggy with a very European-sounding last name. Uh, he fought for gold, started out a little bit slow, but then started to show his patented Ali shuffle on his way to claiming a gold medal. He said he was so excited because he fought for America and came back a champion. 
Quote, I done whooped the world for America. I'm the champ and I know I can eat downtown now. I went to eat downtown and had my medal on and I ordered coffee and a hot dog. And the lady said, we don't serve Negroes. I was so mad and I said, well, I don't eat them neither. Three days ago, I fought for this country in Rome and I won the gold medal and I'm going to eat. And he had to leave the restaurant. And Muhammad Ali said, this is a restaurant in downtown in my hometown where I grew up and I can't even eat here. There, there is something wrong with this. Ali would turn pro following this and started training with Angelo Dundee, who became a, a very key figure in Ali's boxing career. Ali called him and told them he, he was going to be the world's greatest fighter and I want to talk to you. And Dundee said, well, there's a rather crazy fellow downstairs who wants to talk to me, but I, I think he could be good. Ali would move to, or sorry, Clay, um, at the time, would move to Miami to train. He estimated he had uh, around 180 amateur fights, losing three, the first three, which, depending on where you look, uh, not entirely accurate, but the, the, the bravado of Cassius Clay certainly um, ringing true at a, a very early time in his life, as his first pro fight came against Tooney Hunsaker in October 20, uh, October 29th of 1960. He won easily by decision, and he kept winning, it, uh, winning. And he kept talking. He said he took a lot of inspiration from Gorgeous George, an old professional wrestler. George was so confident, and if you didn't like him, you were going to pay to see him get beat. He was a very flamboyant wrestling character at a time in the, the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where flamboyant was not a kind word that people would use. And so Muhammad Ali saw how drawn to hating this guy people were and how they would pay money to see him get beat. And it was because of this, and I mean, racism, that Ali was not widely accepted. Fans would yell things at him, um, uh, things that we are not allowed to say on this show. And we say a lot of things on this show, but you can figure out which particular word Cassius Clay was um, having to deal with. They also threw peanuts at him on his way to the, the ring, but he kept winning, and again, he kept talking. In 1963, he was booed to the ring in England where he wore a crown, saying, I understand you have a queen of England, but no king. There he fought Henry Cooper. Ali predicted a fifth round knockout, but Cooper drilled him with a left hook that dropped Ali late in the fourth round. Ali stumbled to his stool between rounds. He looked very wobbly, and then came out in the fifth round, and took it to Cooper, busting up his eye to the point where the referee had to stop the fight in the fifth round. This was something that Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali would love to do. He would love to kind of call his shot. And we've seen a lot of fighters in, in present day fighting do the same thing. But Ali was the, the one who perfected this. Um, en route now to November of 1963, Clay signed a contract to face Sonny Liston, the heavyweight champion of the world who had been knocking everyone out. Ali wasn't worried about getting knocked out, saying, I've had 180 amateur fights and 20 professional fights, and I still look pretty as a girl. If you want to lose your money, then bet on Sonny. So the fight is set. February 25th, 1964. Clay, a 7-1 to underdog, clearly had the speed advantage early, just getting out of the way of some massive swings from the champion. In the third round, Clay wobbles Liston with a left and starts to turn the pressure on. After the fourth round, Clay started complaining about something in his eyes, and Liston started to, to charge forward. There have been many theories about this over the years that there was some kind of spice or some kind of something on Liston's gloves that was going into Clay's eye. Kind of a, a very old, very, very, very old school boxing trick to try to slow down Cassius Clay. And you can see in the fight, Clay looks entirely different in the fifth round. But by the sixth, Clay 
is his normal self again. He lands a big left, starts playing with him with some quick jabs and some power punches from the left. Liston's eyes are starting to swell shut, and the fight is called off, giving Clay the heavyweight title. Uh, just for those who are not necessarily as familiar with uh, gambling as I may be, 7-1 underdog means if you bet $100 on the fight uh, on Muhammad Ali, or sorry, on Cassius Clay, to win this bout, then you get $700 back. And it, this isn't a perfect example because a lot of the odds are just made so that people bet money on both sides. Like they try to make it as close as possible so they don't take a massive hit on either one. But in theory, a 7-1 underdog means that if they were to fight eight times, Muhammad Ali would win one. So... This was the one. Um, at this point, he was starting to get the attention of Malcolm X, who was with Clay when he was training for the fight and was ringside for the bout and for the post-fight parties as well. For white segregationists in Florida, Clay's friendship with Malcolm X, whom Elijah Muhammad had censured for his insensitive remarks about JFK after the president was assassinated and because he began to see Malcolm X as a threat, was particularly revolting. Um, the Clay Liston promoter, thinking he wouldn't even be able to fill the Miami Convention Hall, threatened to call off the fight unless Malcolm X um, left. Malcolm X agreed to leave, though he returned the night of the fight and saw that this big victory for Cassius Clay and Elijah Muhammad claimed it a win for black Muslims. Clay wasn't at the time officially saying that he was a black Muslim, only that he was kind of on the fringe. Although a couple of weeks later, he was given the name Muhammad Ali from Elijah Muhammad. The FBI at this time had an eye on the black Muslims saying that they were a threat to the United States. Again, around this time, Malcolm X is splitting from the Nation of Islam soon after returning from a trip to Mecca that altered his separatist views on race relations. Ali, however, firmly sided with Elijah Muhammad in the dispute. In February of 1965, Malcolm X is assassinated in Harlem's um, Audubon Ballroom. His supports have long suspected that Elijah Muhammad ordered the hit, although that certainly has not been proven. Muhammad Ali said, I believed that Malcolm was wrong and Elijah was God's messenger. I was in Miami training when I heard Malcolm had been shot to death. Some brother came to my apartment and told me what happened. It was a pity and a disgrace he died like that because what Malcolm saw was right. And after he left us, we went to his way anyway. Color didn't make a man a devil. It's the heart, soul, and mind that counts. A few months after this, so there's a lot going on in uh, now Muhammad Ali's life, and this is where we go from this being a boxing story to this being a story of social justice, and a story that uh, it kind of transcends sport now. He goes from being an athlete to being an activist, but this is one of the, the more famous fights Muhammad Ali has, and he has a bunch of them. But in, in May, so a couple months after Malcolm X is assassinated, Ali fights Sonny Liston for a second time, knocking him out in the first round. He stood over him and did that little quick punch to the bicep that has become the iconic uh, picture of Muhammad Ali. In July they start the draft for the Vietnam War and they start to expand the draft for the Vietnam War. And again, this is where, if, if you're a little bit tired of the boxing stuff, this is where the, for lack of a better term, real life stuff comes into play. Ali was very much against the Vietnam War, saying that he is fighting for freedom in the States. Why would he go fight for the freedom of people he didn't know? This was happening as Ali was getting ready to face Floyd Patterson. Patterson was critical of Ali's social stances, very critical, in fact, and Ali said he was going to punish Patterson, who was then finished in the 12th round. Ali continued to refuse to go to Vietnam, citing religious beliefs. This was obviously extremely controversial and turned Ali into to one of the more hated figures. And this is something that I think is very important to remember. We all 
I shouldn't say we all, but the, the general populace, when they think of Muhammad Ali, they think of him as an extremely popular figure and, and someone who is beloved around the world. And that just simply was not the case for most of Ali's, certainly rise, as the heavyweight champion of the world. And again, just to put that into to context, because it's a little bit different now, if you... If you walk up to the to anyone on the street right now and ask who's the heavyweight champion of the world, you probably aren't going to get a great answer. You're probably not going to have a, a high success rate. But at this time, the heavyweight champion in boxing was the athlete. And in, in an interview several years later, someone asked Muhammad Ali, like, you are the second most popular person in America next to the president. Like, he, he was, the heavyweight champ was the guy in sports. It wasn't a basketball player, it wasn't a football player. Boxing was the sport, and the heavyweight champion was the king. Unless you were Muhammad Ali, as he continued to voice his contempt for American policy before the, the anti-war movement gained steam. Again, this is another thing to remember. We all look back on the Vietnam War as just an absolute disaster, but at the time, it's Go USA, go. Newspaper editorial writers called Ali, quote, the most disgusting character in memory to appear on the sports scene and, quote, a bum of all time. The governor of Illinois labeled Ali as disgusting, while the governor of Maine said that Ali should be held in utter contempt by every patriotic American. Ali's next fight was supposed to be against Ernie Terrell, and it was supposed to be in Chicago. However, People weren't necessarily thrilled about that. The Chicago Tribune earned the Illinois State Athletic Commission to cancel the boat. And they did. Um, few other cities actually wanted any part of Ali. The Terrell fight was eventually moved to Toronto, and then Terrell eventually moved away from the fight. Ali would fight uh, Canadian George Chivalo in a fight that went the distance. Um, and one of a fight that put George Chivalo, one of the more famous Canadian fighters of all time, on the map. Media and politicians called for a boycott of the fight, with Frank Clark, who was a congressman in Pennsylvania at the time, saying the heavyweight champion of the world turns my stomach. In 1967, Ali was set to fight Ernie Terrell again. Terrell refused to call Ali by his name, instead insisting on calling him Cassius Clay. Ali said he was going to whoop Terrell and ask him, what's my name? And I'll keep asking him until he says Muhammad Ali. And he did... Exactly that. By the eighth round, it was clear what direction this fight was going to go, and Ali just started blasting him, punches, combinations, while asking him, what's my name? What's my name? At the end of the eighth round, you can hear him on the broadcast yell, what's my name, as they're going back to the corner. This was a, a very... Uh, again, one of those many turning points and one of those many famous moments for Muhammad Ali. Uh, for Muhammad Ali, sorry, he goes on to win by decision. It was Ali's eighth title defense at the age of 25, which is just mind-boggling to wrap your head around. He's doing all of this, all this stuff we have talked about before his 26th birthday. It's just, it's crazy to think about. And again, there's more stuff going on than just him being the best boxer in the world. Uh, Ali filed for status as a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War on the grounds that his religion prevented him from, quote, participating in wars on the side of non-believers, and this is a Christian war, not a Muslim war. We are not, according to the Holy Quran, to even as much as aid in passing a cup of water to the wounded. His conscientious objector claim 
bounced around the court system until April 28th of 1967, when Ali was to be uh, inducted into the U.S. Army in Houston. When the name Cassius Marcellus Clay was called out at the induction hearing, Ali refused to step order. Uh, sorry, Ali refused to step forward. Ali was now facing a five-year prison sentence. He was immediately stripped of his boxing titles and boxing licenses. Ali, 25, would not fight for another three and a half years. Um, Ali would say, I can't take part in something where I'd be, uh, where I'd help the shooting of dark Asiatic people who haven't lynched me, deprived me of my freedom, justice, and equality, or assassinated my leaders. Ali, again, uh, five-year prison sentence, although that was bounced around a lot. There was a $10,000 fine. He remained free while the uh, conviction was appealed. Many saw Ali as a draft dodger, and his popularity plummeted. He spoke out against the Vietnam War on college campuses as public attitudes turned, however, against the war, support for Ali grew. And that was, again, a slow process. And think about this. At this time, and it's still widely believed, although we are seeing advances in sports science and advances in just health that might change this now, but at that time, and for a long time, the peak years for a professional athlete are kind of like 27 to 30 that that's when like you can obviously be good before and you can be good after but that is when you are at your absolute peak and Muhammad Ali is spending that sitting on the sidelines like he has an amazing boxing career but at the point in an athlete's journey in an athlete's life life where they are supposed to be at their best and for a prize fighter you only get paid when you are fighting that's the prize fighting um so he, he's getting paid to do these these college tours. It's about $2,500 a pop. But for a guy who's making a million dollars per fight and then making nothing for three and a half years, that there's a lot that goes into how incredible it was that Ali was taking this stand. Like what we see a lot of people taking stands today. And there's a reason why anytime any athlete does anything close to something in the, the social justice realm, they are kind of connected and uh, compared is the word I'm looking to. Uh, for for Muhammad Ali and like there's just there, there's not not Colin Kaepernick not anyone else no one has come close to what Ali did and that's not to, to belittle what Colin Kaepernick did in, in any way it's kind of the closest we have seen where an athlete is willing to sacrifice their job to to, to kind of take a stand Muhammad Ali was at the top of the sports world at a time where he was supposed to be at his peak and he just sat out and not necessarily by his own choosing, but he could have immediately been like, ah, you know what? I was wrong. Let's go kick some Vietnam ass or whatever. And he'd be Captain America and he'd run over there and hooray, go Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, whatever. And the people who are saying all these racist, awful things about him all of a sudden have a different tune because he's fighting for old glory. He could have done that very easily and been able to make millions of dollars and been able to be one of the most famous people in the world and on and on and on and on and on. Um, Ali would sue the New York Commission to try to get his license back. And on a night where Joe Frater, uh, Frazier sorry, beat Jimmy Ellis, there was a group picketing outside the arena saying that Ali should be allowed to fight again. And in 1970, Ali was given his license back, ending a three-year Banned. So at the age of 28 years old, he steps back into the ring with Jerry Quarry, with still the threat of prison hanging over his head. The boxing thing's figured out. The prison thing hasn't been. Quick story time here. Quick interjection. Um, I'm I'm home alone recording this, and I don't know our um, 
<laughs> I don't want to say it because it's going to set it off again, but we have one of those home things from one of those, you know, giant tech companies where if you say, okay, insert company name here, tell me about, <laughs> they will start telling you about, <laughs> and again, home alone, all of a sudden I hear a giant voice booming from the living room telling me about Jerry Quarry. Uh, so that scared the absolute hell out of me. So uh, I'm back, but the heart rate is at about 1,002 right now. Holy crap, that scared me. Anyway, I'm going to leave this all in. Um, at the age of 28, Ali steps back into the ring with Jerry Quarry. The, the threat of prison, again, still hanging over his head. The boxing thing's been figured out. The prison thing, yeah, not so much. Ali, and also this fight has to take place in Georgia because a lot of commissions still wouldn't license Ali at the time, and Georgia essentially didn't have one. So Ali was able to, to do this. Also, during the, during some of these stretches, uh, Ali was doing some exhibition type of bouts. There was one point where he fought professional wrestler Antonio Anoki, who is um, the most famous wrestler in, in Japanese pro wrestling history. Um, so uh, Ali was certainly trying a few different things. And now that this boxing fight, it's a professional bout and it's it's sanctioned-ish, just not by an actual commission. So even still, while the, this lawsuit to get his license back goes through, he still has to kind of ease his way into things a little bit. Um, Ali was beating up. Quarry, using a snapping jab to open up a cut over Quarry's eye and forcing the ref to stop the fight. The next uh, next opponent was Oscar Bonavena, who started calling out Ali as a draft dodger and calling him Cassius Clay. This was a pretty easy trope that a lot of people went back to. If you wanted to, to get Ali fired up, you just call him Cassius Clay. That, that seemed to be a little... It was almost cliche for his first few fights back. This was at Madison Square Garden, and in the 15th round, Ali drills Oscar with a left that drops him, and when he got back up, two-punch combo drops Oscar again, and then he gets up for a third time, and Ali drops him to close the show, as you can only get knocked down three times in a round before the referee stops it, which makes sense. That's a lot of brain trauma. This sets up a matchup with Joe Frazier, who was the heavyweight champion in Ali's absence. It was dubbed the fight of the century. It was a star-studded affair at Madison Square Garden. You had Diana Ross showing up. Aretha Franklin was there. Billy Crystal was there. This isn't as big now, but at the time it was, Bill Cosby was there. Like, th there was a lot of very famous people showing up to, to Madison Square Garden to watch this fight. Ali said it was the biggest event in the whole planet Earth, and that's not because of Joe Frazier. Ali was not his regular self, saying that once he felt how hard Frazier could hit and Frazier took his best punches, he knew he had to pace himself to get ready for 15 rounds. So he wasn't doing that patented Ali shuffle. He wasn't dancing around the ring. Frazier's powerful left hand was a pretty constant problem for Ali. Eventually dropping him in the 15th round, Ali would lose for the first time as a professional. Ali, though, was rather confident coming out of that fight. He said that if he took the beating that Frazier did, then he would just retire. Ali said that the loss was given, or had give him, given him, first time with my new tongue, uh, more confidence and wondered if the judge gave, or if the judges, sorry, gave Frazier the fight because of religious reasons. And Ali also said, like, look, I took three years off and I'm still hanging with the heavyweight champion of the world. That This gave him all the confidence in the world and he rode that, winning his next 10 bouts um, before being defeated by Ken Norton. He won the rematch six months later in a split decision and gained further revenge in a unanimous decision, unanimous decision win over Frazier in a non-title rematch. The uh, victory gave the 32-year-old uh, old Ali a title shot against 25-year-old champion George Foreman. 
of the George Foreman Grill. The October 30th, 1974 fight took place not in Madison Square Garden, not in Las Vegas, Nevada, in Kinshasa, Zaire, and it was dubbed the Rumble in the Jungle. Ali, the decided underdog, employed his rope-a-dope strategy, leaning up against the ropes, absorbing a ton of firepower from George Foreman, who at the time was a one-punch knockout king, waiting for Foreman to tire out. And the strategy works. Ali wins in the eighth round by knockout to regain the title that was stripped from him seven years prior. A long journey back to the top of the mountain. Ali successfully defended his title in 10 fights. On October 1st, 1975, Ali and Frazier fought again, ending their kind of grudge. But again, not in New York, not in Vegas, not even in Toronto. This one in and I apologize if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Kenzon City in the Philippines. It was dubbed the Thrilla in Manila. Also, uh, not used for this particular episode, but there is a fantastic documentary called When We Were Kings that kind of follows the journey there. Um, it's an interesting look at at Ali and... Um, oh no, sorry, that one's... Th this one's... Sorry, that, that documentary is about the, the rumble in the jungle. Sorry, my apologies. Um, th there are... Uh, Thousands of documentaries on Muhammad Ali. But no, that, that one's on the Rumble and the Jungle. My apologies. But still, check it out. Um, but anyway, the, the Thrilla in Manila, the bout nearly went the distance. Both men just an absolute war. However, Frazier's trainer threw in the towel after the 14th round, giving the hard-fought victory to Ali. He would then defeat Norton in their third meeting in unanimous decision uh, in 15 rounds. February 15th, 1978, Ali starting to show some signs of aging. He loses his title to Leon Spinks in a 15-round split decision. Think about this, though. Like, heavyweights hit hard. They are the, the biggest fighters in the boxing world, and there is a lot of power that goes into those punches. And you are taking those blows for 15 rounds over and over and over and over again. It, it has to wear on you at some point. But seven months after this, Ali definks, uh, defeats Spinks in a unanimous decision, 15-round fight again to reclaim the heavyweight championship and become the first fighter to win the world heavyweight boxing title three times. Ali would announce his retirement in 1979, and then he came back. And this is a point of controversy for a lot of boxing fans, as he is someone who, I mean, we're going to talk about it in a second, it didn't end gracefully for Muhammad Ali. And while you could already see at the time, things were starting to slow down for Muhammad Ali and the, the speech was starting to slow and the reactions were starting to slow. And he went in there and fought 21-year-old Larry Holmes, who when he would hit the heavy bag, it sounded like a gun going off. And Ali fought him and was knocked out by Holmes. And then he loses a 10-round decision to Trevor Burbick on December 11th, 1981. After the fight, the 39-year-old Ali retired for good with a career record of 56 wins, 5 losses, and 37 knockouts. Outside of the ring, Ali was married four times. He had nine children, including two children that he fathered outside of those four marriages. In 1984, Ali was diagnosed with Parkinson's syndrome, possibly, probably, connected to the severe head trauma suffered during his boxing career. The former champion's motor skills slowly declined, his movement and his speech were limited. In spite of Parkinson's, Ali remained in the public spotlight, traveling the world to make humanitarian goodwill and charitable appearances. He met with Saddam Hussein in 1990 to negotiate the release of American hostages. In 2002, he traveled to Afghanistan as a United Nations messenger of peace. One of the most, um, I guess, iconic 
um, images from the 1996 Summer Olympics was Muhammad Ali lighting the cauldron during the opening ceremonies. In 1999, Ali was voted the BBC's Sporting Personality of the Century, and Sports Illustrated named him Sportsman of the Century. Ali was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2005, and in the same year, the $60 million Muhammad Ali Center, a nonprofit museum and cultural center focusing on peace and social responsibility, opened in Louisville. Ring Magazine named Ali Fighter of the Year five times, more than any other boxer, and he was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 1990. Which, I will say, uh, it seems a little bit late. You know, like, the guy retired in, what was that, 1980? and uh, 1981, and he's not getting into the Hall of Fame until 1990? I don't care what rules you have about how long they have to wait to get into the Hall of Fame, that should have been waived. That That's ridiculous. Um, Ali dies at the age of 74 on June 3rd, 2016. Uh, again, he is such a remarkable figure, in my opinion. Someone who, at the peak of his career, decided that what was going on in the world at the time was more important than him boxing. And him standing up for what he believed in was more important than him getting into a ring and doing what he did best and cost him millions and millions of dollars and millions and millions of fans at the time. And then public opinion starts to turn and you just, you, you wish it would have ended better. You know, like you, you wish that he could have been someone who enjoyed his later years and enjoyed being able to, to go to all of these places. And for the most part, like you, you talk to anyone around him and he still had that same, that same personality and, and that same charm right up until his, his final moments. But he just, he wasn't the same. And you, you really wish that he could have been and could have enjoyed things uh, a little bit more. And still to the, the people who we fought, there's a, again, wonderful documentary called Facing Ali, where they, they look at Muhammad Ali through the eyes of the people that he fought. And there are a lot of fighters who are like, look, you know, you only know who I am because I fought him. But there are also people like he was kind of relentless with the trash talk. And especially when it came to social justice and when it came to, for lack of a better term, blackness. And he seemed to not really understand why people wouldn't be on his side uh, on these things and had took great, almost insult, when black fighters wouldn't be on the same side of him on some of these issues. And because of that, it, it really did shape public perception on some of these guys. And Ali said some things that he couldn't take back, for sure. That this is not a, a perfect human being by any stretch of the imagination, but none of us are. Um, I, I just, I can't imagine the the entire world is looking at you and you have an opportunity to make so much money and to, yeah, like to, to just like have whatever life you want. And he decides to take a pause from that at his, the, the biggest moment in, in his career. It, it's something we, we hadn't seen up until that point and we, we will never see another Muhammad Ali again. So thank you for uh, indulging me. Kim will absolutely be back next week. In the meantime, you can email us Couch Potato or no, sorry, that's my other podcast. Uh, quick. <laughs> Old habits die hard. Um, if you want more sports talk from me, Couch Potato Diaries, where you can find that. Uh, but you can email us. We had no idea podcast at gmail.com. You can also find this podcast on Instagram at we had no idea podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever possible. It helps us out just a whole bunch. And yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll talk to you with Kim next week. <laughs>